0: Alright, welcome back. Thank you again for joining us. We're so glad you're here. Today for a sermon or meditation, I'd like to talk a little bit about a story that we find in the Old Testament. Stories are something that I'm drawn to, I think most of us are probably drawn to, because stories have a way of really drawing us in. Stories have a way of making a truth really stick, where otherwise it might not stick as well. But as we look at the stories from Scripture, and specifically the story we want to look at today, I think it's really important for us to remember that this isn't just a made-up story. These are stories of real people living a real life, just as real as yours and mine today. And as we look at these stories, we learn things about people, we learn things about ourselves, but we also can learn some very important truths about who God is, about His nature, and about His character. We all love a good plot in a story. Most of the stories, it seems, that we hear or that we watch in a movie have this one plot, this one theme, where it's the good guy versus the bad guy. It's good versus evil. You have a villain and a hero. And we all love the heroes of the stories. And we all love that at the end of a movie, it's always or it always seems like it's the good that has the victory over the evil. And yet, sometimes in life, it doesn't feel like that's a reality. Sometimes in life, it feels like it's the darkness, it's the, the evil that has the upper hand. And those are things that you and I face in life that are really real. But as we'll find out, when we know the end of the story, we know what, how it ends. We can, it changes how we view things right in the middle of the story. So as we, as we think about this story, I want us to be thinking about the fact that God is in those dark times, in those times when it feels like evil may be winning. God is in the business. God is raising up people who are willing to lay down their own agendas, who are willing to lay down their own desires, and are willing to lay it all on the line for the sake of the gospel. And I believe God is doing that today. And so as we look at this story and other stories throughout Scripture and history, particularly in, God's, in the, the people in Scripture that God used as what we would call heroes, oftentimes it was someone who seemed like a very unlikely hero, not the person that we would naturally gravitate to. And that's definitely the case in our story today. So if your children watched the video that was linked on Facebook, um, you already know the story that we're looking at. It's the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and 7. But if I remember right, that, that video from Right Now Media, it entitled it something along the lines of an unlikely hero. And so that's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, why was Gideon an unlikely hero? And so as familiar as this story is, there's one question that I want us to be considering or thinking about, and then I'll explain why I come to that. And that is the question of what or who is a person of valor. Now, valor is not a word that we use a whole lot anymore, but valor simply means someone who has great courage in the face of danger. Another definition is someone who is a force of might, or maybe we would say a force to be reckoned with. Now, I trust that all of us long and want to be a force that needs to be reckoned with when it comes to fighting for the kingdom of God but as we as we look at that question there's there's four different things that I want to look at from the life of Gideon perhaps that we can use to define what or who is a person a man or a woman of a valor and I'll get to those in just a little bit but let me give you the setting of what's happening here in Judges chapter 6. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, that's fine. If not, if you just want to listen to the story, that's okay. The story of Gideon takes place from Judges chapter 6 through chapter 8. We're only going to be looking at chapters 6 and 7. These are probably the most familiar parts of Gideon's story. But the first 10 verses of chapter 6 kind of set the a stage for what's going to be happening the rest of the way here, it gives us the setting of the life of Gideon and the world that Gideon is living in. So the children of Israel have turned their backs on God, and in their, in their turning away from God, God has allowed the Midianites and the Amalekites to come and to bring oppression to the children of Israel. And that oppression has become tremendously severe. It's actually been going on, it says in the first part of chapter 6, it's been going on for seven years now. And what would be happening is these Midianites and Amalekites were nomads who would live in the desert. They had their camels, it says, and they would, with their camels, they would come swooping in in a raid, swiftly coming in, and then right back out before a defense attack could be staged. And they'd been doing this for seven years now. And they would wait until the crops were planted and ready for harvest. Then they would come in and just completely wipe out everything. And it had gotten to the point or to the place where the children of Israel or the Israelites were simply trying to survive. That's no place that anyone likes to be is simply surviving. Because it says that they actually ended up going up Living in dens and caves up in the mountains to try to escape from the Midianites. So it's a very, very dark time and a dark place for the for the Israelites right now in Gideon's world that he's living in. But then we get to chapter or to verse seven, and we see the children of Israel, Gideon and all of his fellow Israelites crying out to God for deliverance. And God raises up an unlikely hero to deliver them and to bring them freedom. So let's look at the life of Gideon and what is it that we can draw and learn from his life. So the, the outset of where Gideon comes into the picture is found in verse 11. That's where his story starts. But you have the setting and the world that he's living in, the fear that they are all feeling. And we find Gideon at the outset of his story, we we find him threshing wheat in a wine press. The absolute, probably the worst place you can possibly think of to thresh wheat. Because threshing wheat is a very, very dusty job. And normally it would be done out in the open somewhere where all the wind would blow the chaff away and all the dust would be blown away. But because of the oppression of the Midianites, I can picture Gideon down in this den or this depression somewhere where he's hidden from view, constantly looking over his shoulder. When might they be coming? And he's threshing wheat, and caked in dust because there's no place for the dust to go, and he's threshing wheat trying to provide a meal for his family. But then he looks up and he sees someone sitting under the tree, and I don't know that he realizes that at this point. But it says it was an angel of the Lord, and I want to draw our attention to the very end of verse twelve. The first thing that this angel says to this guy who's in this wine press, covered in dust, scared to death, the first thing that the angel says to him is, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then they have a little bit of a conversation in verse 13, and again in verse 14, the, the angel again brings up this, this concept of Gideon being a man of great might. And so there's where I come to this question. What was in Gideon that God would, this angel from God, would with the first introduction to him, he would call him a mighty man of valor? So... We know from Gideon's response that he certainly didn't feel like a mighty man of valor, a force to be reckoned with. You see, in verse 15, Gideon's response to the angel is, he says, my clan, his family clan, is the very least. They're the least in the whole tribe of Manasseh. They're the weakest. He says that they're the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. And he is the very least in his own family. So Gideon does not feel like a mighty warrior. He doesn't feel like he's a man of valor, a force to be reckoned with. He sees himself as weak, as nothing, as fearful. But I believe in that angel's first statements to Gideon, I believe God is speaking truth into Gideon's life, that Gideon is not yet able to see. And I think God speaks that truth into your life and into my life. He speaks truth into our lives that we may not yet see. But it is the truth because God is the voice of truth. So as you think about that, God sees in each one of you, Whether you're a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, you can be young, you can be old, it doesn't matter. God sees in you, I believe, a mighty person of valor, a force to be reckoned with for the kingdom of God. So what does that kind of a person look like? How do you define a person of valor? So the first, the first of those four points that I want to, that I gather from the story of Gideon, and there are probably others you could pull out um, as well, and that's fine. But there's just four that I want to look at today. The first thing that I see that defines a person of valor is found in, excuse me, in verses 25 down through 27, and this follows. This follows the 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 story where Gideon and this angel are interacting with each other. And the angel, Gideon wants to go and get a present for the angel. So he goes and prepares a meal, and he brings out meat and bread and some broth. And the angel tells him to put it on the rock over there. And then the angel reaches out with his staff, and he touches the meat, the bread, and the broth... And it burns up into nothing and poof, the angel disappears. It's at this point that Gideon realizes that he has seen an angel from God. It is an angel from God that has been speaking to him. And with that, in verse 25, it says that very same night, this is what God told Gideon to do. And so the, uh, the first thing that defines a person of valor is a person who is willing to first deal with the sin in his own life. In that next portion of Scripture, we see Gideon going out and he tears down the bales and the Asherah the idols that have been set up by his family, perhaps for years already. But it's the idols that have been worshipped by his family, and by Gideon himself. And so Gideon sees that the first thing he needs to do is to get his own house in line. And so you and I, if we're going to be mighty men of valor in God's army, we need to deal with the sin, with the idols that we find in our own lives. Notice that Gideon doesn't make excuses, He doesn't say, well, it was my dad who set these up. They weren't mine. No, he owns it. He takes responsibility for his sin and for his idolatry and even for that of his family and his country. We so easily set up idols in our lives, many times even unawares. And those idols can take so many different forms. Things like wealth. Even maybe poverty, maybe we we think we're better off if we're poor. Comfort, security, on and on. You can make a list as long as your arm if you want to. But all those things, and if you don't know what idols are set up in your life, ask God. He'll show you. But a person of valor first deals with what's going on in here. Doesn't go out and try to fight a battle in front of them Without first dealing with their own heart, and when you do this, there's no guarantee that it's going to be easy. You're going to need men and women around you to walk with you through some of those, through some of those um, tough times when God rids you of those idols. I see Gideon doing that. He took ten different men, men that he trusted. He calls them their, his servants men who he knew wouldn't betray him. And he went out and he dealt with the idols that were all around him at that time. And we'll come back to that because there's more to that piece of the story. But the second thing that I see, a person of valor, is one who moves forward in spite of fear. So when Gideon went to tear down the idols that had been set up if you read carefully through the story it says that he went out and he did it at night because he was afraid to do it at day because he felt like if he would do it at day the opposition would be so great and so because he was so afraid he did it at night when no one would see with just a few trusted men and he was right the opposition opposition was great In the next verses there, in verses around verse 30 there, the people actually wanted to kill Gideon because of what he'd done. And then they realized that he had done the right thing. And so Gideon begins, he kind of gets this new wave of courage in verse 33. We kind of see him stepping up to the plate and he says, okay, maybe I am God's man to deliver the Israelites. Because we see him sounding the trumpet, sending out messengers into all the other tribes of Israel. And he begins to round up men to go fight the Midianites. But he's still not done with his fear, the fear that he faces. But he continues to move forward in spite of his fear. So when Gideon calls together all these men to go fight the Midianites we can get from the first part of chapter, 30, or chapter 7 that he comes up with 32,000 men to go fight. Now, if you need a little bit of context to put that in, what does 32,000 men, what does that look like? Um, if you've ever been to Progressive Field, Progressive Field holds somewhere around 35,000 people, if I'm not mistaken. So, picture yourself in a progressive field that's packed out, and now you're ready to go fight the Midianites. You're ready to be God's mighty man, this force to be reckoned with. And then Gideon gets hit with another wave of fear. And in verses 36 down through 40 of chapter 6, we see Gideon, we know this part of the story so well, where Gideon puts out a fleece, And at first, the fleece is wet. And then the next time, again, he asks God to do it again, and the fleece is dry. And we can get really frustrated, or I can get frustrated with Gideon at this point. It's like, why would you just keep questioning God? He's made it so clear that you're his man. But sometimes, we know the end of the story here. But sometimes when we're right in the middle of a hard thing, or something that looks so big in front of us, the battle looks so great. We do what Gideon maybe did here, and we take our eyes off of who is with us, and we take our eyes, and put our eyes on who's against us. Because I wonder if Gideon didn't look ahead in verse 12 of chapter seven, it says, it gives us a picture of what the Midianite army looked like. It says they were like the sand of the seashore. You couldn't even count their camels. The valley was literally full. And suddenly it looked like this progressive field full of soldiers looked pretty small in comparison. And so Gideon is again faced with his fear. But God in Gideon's life, like in our life, is so gracious and so patient with Gideon And he affirms Gideon that this is his battle to go win, or God's battle, and God is using Gideon. Gideon is his man to go fight this battle. So being a man of valor or a person of valor doesn't mean you're not faced with fear. The question is simply, what do I do with that fear? What do you and I do with that fear? We see what Gideon did with it. And he wrestled with his fear, but then he moved forward in spite of the fear. The opposition was still just as great, but he kept moving forward. In chapter 7, that's what we see happening. But chapter 7 brings us to something completely different. And this is where I draw my third conclusion or third definition of what a person of valor is. So Gideon has dealt with his fear. But perhaps a person of valor is one who embraces his weakness so that God's strength can be revealed. This, for me, is probably one, and for probably many of us, is probably one of the hardest things to do. But let's look at the story. Let's look at what happens with Gideon's progressive field full of soldiers, 32,000 strong We're in chapter 7 now, and in verse 2, God tells Gideon, you've got way too many men. He says, if you take this many, then the people are going to think you won the victory on your own, and it wasn't I, it wasn't God who won the victory for them, and they'll take credit for themselves. And so God begins to dwindle the numbers God first takes from those 32,000, he tells Gideon, tell everyone who's afraid or shaking in fear, tell them they can go home. They don't have to go to battle. So picture yourself in progressive field full of your soldiers. You're surrounded by all these 30-some thousand men and two-thirds of them get up and walk out and leave. Imagine how deflating that would feel. You begin to wonder, God, do you really know what you're doing here? So now they're down to 10,000 men. And God tells Gideon, you still have way too many. And I can only imagine what Gideon must be beginning to think and feel. But the next test is God. Take, Gideon takes him down to the brook or to the stream and all the men who kneel down and drink directly out of the stream are sent home. Only the ones who cup the water with their hands and bring it up to their mouth and drink. 300 of them, only those 300, are taken into battle with Gideon. So I ask you, have you ever felt like Gideon must have felt? Have you ever felt like God is just stripping away everything that God Brings you security, everything that you hold so closely, everything that brings you comfort. God dwindles down our numbers. He dwindles down those things that we tend to find security in, those things that we tend to depend on that aren't Christ, that aren't Him. Just like Gideon, He begins to strip those things away, and our weaknesses become exposed. And that our weaknesses are things that we tend to hide so well from others. We try to hide them even from ourselves often. And yet, when we embrace our weakness and we recognize that our own strength, of our own strength, we can accomplish nothing. It's only by God's strength that anything good flows out of my life, If any, that anything good flows out of your life. And when we embrace that, I believe it unleashes the power of God like we'll see in the story. It unleashes the power of God in our lives and into the world around us. So we embrace our weakness. And then the last thing that I want to draw us to is the actual battle as it takes place. A person of valor is someone who does not fight with conventional weapons. When you look at what Gideon and his three hundred men take into this battle, it seems really, really crazy. Now I don't know if I I picture this valley out in front of them, big valley, maybe a mile wide, a couple miles long, and it is full of the enemy. And you've got your three hundred men And they take into this battle, they have a ram's horn or a trumpet, and they have torches that they cover up with a clay pot. And so how in the world do you fight a battle with a vast army of Midianites and Amalekites with those weapons? Well, we know how the story goes. They split up into three groups of 100 and they station themselves all the way around this valley. And at Gideon's signal, they blow their trumpets, and they smash those pitchers, and those torches come to life, and they shine brightly across that valley, and the sound of the horns echoes across the valley. And the Midianites are thrown into a panic, and it says they actually begin to kill each other, and then the few that are left end up fleeing, and the three hundred men end up following after and pursuing them through down through most of chapter eight, actually, and defeating them. Now, as I as I read that, as I think about that part of the story, I suppose it's possible that the sound of those ram's horns and the the trumpets or the, the trumpets and the pitchers being broken and those torches coming to light gave the army there in the valley, the enemy army, the picture that they're completely surrounded by the enemy, and it throws them into confusion. But I wonder, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but but I wonder because these are these are experienced soldiers, they're trained soldiers, they're not. Just totally untrained guys. I can't believe that that would simply throw them in a panic where they begin to kill each other. Here's what what I think could have been what had happened. I believe that because of Gideon and his 300 men, the faith that they had to pursue the army or or to go to battle with those unconventional weapons and following through, blowing the ram's horn and putting those, lighting those torches, which gave away where they were at as well. I believe the faith that it took to do that, God worked a miracle and threw that army into utter confusion so that it was without question that it was God who won this battle. The trumpets And the pitchers and the torches were an act of obedience and an act of faith by Gideon that threw the army into confusion. And so they went into battle with completely unconventional weapons. So the battle that you and I are called into, I believe God calls us to fight with unconventional weapons, not the weapons that our world fights with. The world tells us you fight fire with fire. When someone yells at you, you yell at them back. You, you just give it right back. You fight right back with them. Ephesians talks about the weapons that we fight with. And I'll close with that here in just a minute. But I believe that the weapons that people of valor are to fight with. God's people of valor Our weapons such as fighting love, or I'm sorry, fighting hate with love. Love is the most powerful weapon that I believe this world, in this world. We fight chaos by bringing peace. We fight confusion by bringing understanding, by listening, by bringing clarity. We fight pain By bringing comfort. And on and on and on your list could go. But we don't fight the way that the world fights. We come with unconventional weapons into the battle. So in conclusion, as you look at the story of Gideon, and just like the world that Gideon was living in, we too live in a world that is broken and messed up. We're live. People are living in fear and oppression. We live in a world that is desperate, for, desperately needs men and women, boys and girls of valor. And I believe that as we cry out to God in our brokenness and repentance, that God will raise up those men and women. And I believe that even now, God is raising up men and women, boys and girls, from Providence to be mighty warriors, men and women, people of valor for his army to reclaim what the enemy has taken. So as you think about God calling you a person or a man or a woman of valor, Become a person who first deals and confronts the sin and idolatry in your own life. Become a person who moves forward in the face of fear. Who acknowledges the fear but is not controlled by it and is not held back or stopped by it. Moves forward in the face of fear. Be a person who embraces weakness so that God's strength can be released And unleashed in your life and in the world around you. And then as you go into the battle, remember the weapons that God has given us to go fight in this battle. And sometimes we complicate this so much. We would love to see big, flashy things like missiles and bombs that just make big waves across the world. But Ephesians 6 17 to 20, and I'll just close with reading that, is how we make big waves across the world and how we change our world. These are the weapons that we are called to fight with. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in perseverance, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of God and prayer will change the world like nothing else in this world ever can. Let's pray. God, as you move in our midst, as you call us to rise up and to be the next Gideons, the Gideons of our world, men and women of valor who are willing to go and fight the battles that you have called us to fight, God, I pray that you would Enable us, cause us to look within ourselves, to embrace our weakness, to move forward in spite of our fears, and to fight with the weapons that you have given to us. Raise us up, raise up a godly army to advance your kingdom in this world that so desperately needs a touch of your love. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and week. God bless.